of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Okay, welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. I'm glad you could be with us. Uh, We're going to have a busy show for you today. In half a minute, we'll hear our interview with Dr. Donald Abrams, whose work with medical marijuana and AIDS patients I greatly respect. We'll also hear from Tim Beck uh, out of Michigan and their efforts up there to uh, bring some sense to their marijuana laws. We'll hear from Bruce Merkin of the Marijuana Policy Project, from Terry Nelson of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Doug McVeigh with Drug War Facts, and Phil Smith with the Corrupt Cop Story of the Week. But first up, Dr. Donald Abrams. This is Donald Abrams, and I'm a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm also the chief of the hematology oncology division at San Francisco General Hospital, that is blood and cancer. And for many years, I've been uh, working in our positive health program, which is the division in the Department of Medicine uh, where we take care of patients living with HIV and AIDS. Basically, I'm a pioneer in HIV-AIDS care and research, and I've been working in it since the very beginning of the epidemic in 1981. What I've done over the course of my career is become more interested in complementary and alternative interventions, first for hiv and now for cancer. One of those uh, complementary therapies that I've been interested in, of course, is uh, medicinal cannabis and have done a number of studies in that in patients with HIV. What I'm doing now, after having completed a two-year fellowship at the University of Arizona in Andrew Weil's program in integrative medicine, I decided that what I really liked doing was providing integrative medicine consultation for people living with and beyond cancer. So as of August 1st, I've become the director of clinical programs at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, and that is where I will continue to do my practice in integrative oncology, again, informing uh, patients living with and beyond cancer on how to integrate nutrition, exercise, botanicals, Chinese medicine, mind-body medicine into their standard program of surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy. So in order to continue to do my hematology-oncology position at San Francisco General, as well as this new position, I, I needed to give something up. So I saw my last clinic of people living with HIV on August 8th, after 23 years of continuously caring for people with HIV, And I've also relinquished the principal investigator position on my community-based clinical trials uh, program that I've led here in San Francisco again for the last 21 years. So those are some big changes for me, but in the meantime, I will continue uh, to investigate uh, medicinal cannabis. Uh, We have a study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse now looking at pharmacokinetic interactions Uh, between cannabinoids and opioids in cancer patients with pain who are taking uh, either morphine sulfate or oxycontin for their pain. And in this study, we'll be bringing these patients into our inpatient general uh, clinical research center at San Francisco General Hospital and measuring the levels of the opioids, the MS-contin or the oxycontin, in their bloodstream before and after smoking 
uh, cannabis. Actually, what we're waiting for to begin the study is we've petitioned everybody, and now it's up to the FDA to see if we can, instead of having smoked cannabis, use vaporized cannabis because we've recently completed a study demonstrating that vaporization is fairly comparable to smoking with regards to delivery of THC into the bloodstream. So we hope that the FDA uh, will give us approval and then we can move ahead to commence the cannabinoid opioid interaction study in cancer patients. So I'm still very much involved uh, in cannabis research. Well, Dr. Abrams, uh, my limited uh, understanding uh, tells me that uh, for those people taking these opioids or, or other pain drugs, that uh, oftentimes uh, once they use the cannabis, they find that they can use lesser amounts of these sometimes uh, more destructive products. Is, is that a, a true observation? Well, that is certainly what we've heard as well, and there are animal studies uh, in addition that suggest that there's not only additive effects of cannabinoids and opioids in relieving pain, but synergistic effects. That is, the sum of the whole is greater than each of the parts. In this study, we're not really looking at the effect on pain per se. What we're looking at is the effect of smoking cannabis on the blood levels of the opioids. So that's what, uh, you know, we're looking at. And, you know, if it shows that there's some potential interaction, then, you know, this may be a very useful adjunctive therapy uh, for cancer patients with pains who are taking opioids. In addition, the cannabis, by having anti-nausea activity, may decrease some of the side effect of the opioids as well. And, and again, my, my observation is that the right hand perhaps doesn't know what the left hand is doing, but the fact that you're working with NIDA, it would tend to indicate that the, the door is opening a little bit to, to this research despite government pro- protestations. Well, the majority of the research that we've done in the past has been uh, funded by the University of California Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. They are the ones really set up to fund research that looks for the effectiveness of smoked marijuana in various medical conditions. NIDA continues to be uh, mandated by Congress to study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. So in this study, uh, we are looking at the safety of cannabis in patients taking opioids, and we're not really looking uh, for clinical benefit. Well, what what would you... uh suggest to uh, other clinicians and doctors out there there's a lot of data available about medical marijuana perhaps they could uh, reframe their position well you know it's difficult to get data published i'm still trying to get the results of one of my recent studies published uh, the the reviewers comments are usually not that bad but the editors don't seem interested in printing it so it's it is difficult uh, the medical board of california put out about two years ago guidelines for physicians on, you know, how they can go about uh, recommending uh, the use of cannabis to their patients without fear of any actions by the Medical Board of California. But at the same time, they said, you know, this is our law in California, but we still live in the United States and federal law supersedes. So, you know, that is a, that is something that still frightens people. Uh, you know, I certainly, as somebody who takes care of patients with cancer, uh, have seen uh, the effect on appetite, nausea, uh, pain, and mood. And I think that this is a very useful substance, and, and I often do find myself uh, saying that it's fine with me if my patients do seek medicinal cannabis. Uh, if you would, please explain the difference between smoking a joint and the vaporization process. 
So vaporization uh, is a process where the cannabis is heated to below the point of combustion, where it uh, bursts into flame and and produces products that uh, people feel uh, may be harmful to inhale. Uh, Vaporization uh, heats again to below the point of combustion, and depending on what kind of device is used, uh, the vapors are collected and then inhaled. And we found that uh, actually patients, when they were smoking or vaporizing, uh, preferred the vaporization technique and had much less evidence of expired carbon monoxide, uh, which would be a toxin that you do want to avoid. Next, Drug War Facts with Doug McVeigh. Fentanyl, an artificial opiate many times more powerful than heroin, is finding its way into the drug supply in several areas around the U.S., usually being sold as heroin. A number of heroin users in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Illinois, Michigan, and other states have unknowingly overdosed as a result. Some have died. Heroin overdoses normally involve other drugs as well, typically alcohol. The combination of alcohol and heroin, both central nervous system depressants, can be very dangerous. Both will slow down a person's breathing. If someone's breathing slows enough, unless they get medical attention, they could die. These fentanyl overdoses may involve other drugs as well, but it seems that in these cases, the real problem is the fentanyl. Make no mistake, the stuff really can be deadly. To fight the problem of overdosing, some health authorities are looking into providing a drug called naltrexone to addicts. Naltrexone, or Narcan, is what's called an opiate antagonist. That is, Narcan counteracts the effects of heroin and other opiates. If a person suffers an opiate overdose, but they're given Narcan immediately, they are probably going to survive. The White House Drug Policy Office opposes the idea. Not surprising. The drug czar thinks of drug use as an irredeemable sin and opposes anything which might reduce the risk of danger or harm from drug use. That's why he also opposes needle exchanges. The drug czar is wrong. In Boston and other areas, health authorities are moving forward to make Narcan available anyway because drug use and even drug addiction are not irredeemable sins. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. This is Phil Smith with the Drug War Chronicle with this week's Corrupt Cop Stories for the Drug Truth Network. This week we got a trio, and I'm going to start in Memphis, where three police officers have been indicted on charges they ripped off drug dealers and arranged to sell the drugs themselves. Memphis Police Officers Antoine Owens and Alexander Johnson joined with former officer Arthur Cease in setting up drug deals, then swooping in with uniformed officers, detaining the drug dealers, and stealing their drugs, cash, and jewelry. According to WREG-TV in Memphis, police are naming Cease as the ringleader. He faces a 50-count indictment with charges including conspiracy, extortion, possession of a controlled substance, and numerous civil rights violations. Officers Owens and Johnson are charged with two conspiracy counts. Meanwhile, up in St. Paul, Minnesota, a retired police officer was indicted on federal drug charges Tuesday, KSTP-TV reported. Former officer Clemmy Howard Tucker, age 51, was identified as the man who tried to pick up a suspicious package at a Minneapolis bus depot. That package contained 22 pounds of cocaine and 8 pounds of methamphetamine. The 25-year veteran faces one count each of attempting to possess with intent to distribute cocaine and methamphetamine. And over in Richmond, Virginia, we have yet another crooked prison guard. Uh, In Richmond, a Henrico County Sheriff's deputy was charged last Friday with smuggling drugs, cigarettes, cigars, and other contraband into the Henrico County Jail. Deputy Ronald Washington, age 23, allegedly made more than 1000 bucks for his efforts. He's charged with felony delivery of a controlled substance to a prisoner and misdemeanor delivery of articles to prisoners, the Richmond Times-Dispatch reported. 
He's being held without bond at the Pamunkey Regional Jail in Hanover County. That's all of our corrupt cops for this week, but you can check out the rest of the Drug War Chronicle online at www.stopthedrugwar.org. Well, I'm Tim Beck, and I'm executive director of the uh, Michigan chapter of uh, Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Uh, Tim, I talked to, uh, um, I'll call them drug reform politicians around the country, some running for major office, U.S. Senate, uh, governorships, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, if you will, breaking down the door a bit. They're opening the uh, discussion to uh, drug reform. And uh, I, I'm also aware of organizations like yours and individuals like uh, you and your associates who are working more at the grassroots level. trying to change the marijuana laws to lessen the penalties to change the focus for the police forces tell us what's going on in michigan well we got two things going on in michigan dean we've got uh, uh... ballot initiatives we've got one in the city of flint uh... flint is a an industrial city population hundred and twenty five thousand people majority african-american majority about sixty five percent uh, total, and we're running a ballot initiative to amend the city ordinance to grant an exemption for medical use of, of marijuana. And uh, we turned in our signatures uh, two days ago on that one. And then in the city of Niles, which is in southwest Michigan, uh, completely out of uh, near the Indiana border, uh, we have some very good activists there. Uh, and we're going to... Uh, uh, taking the approach to make the possession or use uh, of marijuana uh, under 1.1 ounce or less of marijuana by an adult on private property, the lowest law enforcement priority uh, of the city of Niles. Uh, the city of Niles, there is just a real, they've had a lot of problems with the police there. Uh, there's just not a lot of trust between the police and the community. And a lot of folks there feel that the police priorities are, you know, completely wrong. They're casting their nets for small fish rather than going after people that are committing real crimes like, you know, breaking into people's houses and cars and, and uh, you know, dealing um, hard drugs, uh, you know, throughout the city. And, uh that effort will stand or fall upon the community's confidence in the police, and it just doesn't seem to be there. Now, I, I know in California they have these, uh, I'll call them Prop Z type uh, situations, I think parallel that uh, law, uh, lowest law enforcement priority. Yeah. Yes, it does. The difference with ours, though, it, it is a little different than in California, and this area, uh, our, our approach here is a little bit more conservative. What you've got going in, in California cities like Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara and so on is that they make the use of marijuana, uh, you know, by adults the lowest law enforcement priority, but they don't restrict it to any particular amount uh, of marijuana. In our case, we're restricting it to a small amount of marijuana because of the campaign approach, uh, you know, that that we're you know we're taking. I think we have a better chance of winning, and of course we want you know we want to win. And our whole approach here is to leave the small fish, leave you know folks that are not you know big dealers and on, and I just leave them alone and go after you know other criminals because uh, you know mostly small-time marijuana users are not dangerous people in any sense of the word. They're not addicts that are going on a rampage stealing and, and that kind of thing. And 
uh, it's oftentimes easier for the police to bust these small fish that are no danger where you've got um, serious criminals that actually have guns and, and might shoot people <laughs> or uh, get, you know, give the cops a real, real hard time. And uh, the perception there that the police just aren't doing their job. And so on a gradual basis in order to um, get their priorities right about marijuana in general over the long term, we're taking baby steps in that regard. And I, I know in California, I, I consider uh, those people that uh, sell the medical cannabis uh, on a daily basis, knowing full well the DEA might be their next customer, I, I consider those folks to be uh, uh, patriots. They're very courageous people. Uh, people, yes, people willing to stand for what they believe in, and, and I think the the people in Michigan uh, perhaps are following in the footsteps of Tom and Raleigh who were gunned down at Rainbow Farms uh, almost exactly five years ago yeah, now. That's correct. Well, Niles, as a matter of fact, is uh, less than 30 miles away from Rainbow Farm, and it's a very well-known and infamous uh, event you know, in Niles and uh, in, that whole, uh, in that whole community. And there's, there's a lot of subterranean anger uh, about that. And uh, this is the primary motivation of our activists out, you know, in Niles in southwest Michigan is they're basically doing it for, for Tom and Raleigh. That's really what it amounts to. That's the real motivator for these folks. What's really special about Niles is that our chairman uh, the, of the Coalition for Sa a Safer Niles is a gentleman named, by the name of Don Barnes. Don Barnes served 20 years in the United States Army, and he honorably retired. He got a bronze star in the Gulf War. And unfortunately, he also developed Gulf War syndrome, and his dad got cancer, and he was raising his own marijuana for medical purposes, and he was arrested. Fortunately for him, he got a kind of Rush Limbaugh deal, okay, that if he just pays court costs and is a good boy, you know, for a year and takes a drug test and passes, then his record is completely dismissed. Uh, but nonetheless, he is understandably extremely upset that here is a man that served his country for 20 years, uh, as I say, a bronze star uh, with a V for valor, and now he gets crapped on by the system like that. And he's a very, very credible man. He's very disciplined. He's very methodical. And he's putting it right on the line. This sounds very reminiscent of uh, what I hear from Mr. Montel Williams, yes. who served our country for uh, uh, quite some time and, and uh, uh, is now a medical marijuana user because he has multiple sclerosis. That's correct. Well, you know, the interesting thing about Niles is Niles has an arcane, you know, medical marijuana law already on its books. But it's, I mean, the law is outdated, and Don didn't meet that standard, and they just said, the hell with you, we're just going to charge you under state law anyway. We're just not recognizing, you know, this law. So what we decided to do was, again, push the envelope a little bit, given the fact that Don is such a highly credible, you know, individual, you know, in this community. And that part of Michigan, yeah, it's rural, it's pretty conservative, and people like patriots. They, 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 they like, and they also like individual freedom. And this is what, you know, we, we believe that we're, we're looking at, you know, here, um, you know, here in Niles. And we do, we do have hope. I, I think we've got a better chance of winning on a medical basis in Flint. But we're going to push the envelope here and simply because we've got a good man in Don and the rest of these activists, and we're going to see what we can do. Once again, we're speaking with Mr. Tim Buck. Give us that website, please. It's M-I-Normal, M-I-Normal, 
dot org. N O R M L. It's just M I Normal dot org. Well, Tim, uh, any closing thoughts? T- tell folks that it can be done, I guess. Tell them uh, how it's done. Well, it, it can be done. And, and, and again, what happened, we've got a phenomenon here you know, in Michigan in that we have passed four ballot initiatives now in the state of Michigan, Detroit, Ferndale, Ann Arbor, and Traverse City, all changing local law to a lot for medical marijuana and we've and people are getting excited this is the one problem that a lot of especially grassroots activists they can bump their head against a wall you know day after day and they get nothing you know for it and now that we're starting to win we're creating our own momentum people are coming out of the closet coming out of the woodwork you know with money and they want to volunteer you know, to change this around. And there's also the possibility that, that we're going to get funding from a major drug policy reform organization for a statewide ballot initiative in 2008. And this is what our real long-term game plan is. And we're feeling pretty confident about that. And uh, all you need, like I say, is just a few disciplined, determined people, and you can you can change things. I am Bruce Merkin, Director of Communications at the Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, this week we're, we're talking with various folks about the implementation of the marijuana laws around the country and those trying to change these laws by referendum on this uh, November ballot. But there's a, a situation happening up in the New York area where supposedly they were going to go light on people, but it's quite the opposite, is it not? Well, yeah, an interesting study uh, came out uh, just this week in the Harm Reduction Journal where they looked at the uh, big spike in marijuana arrests in New York City that occurred uh, under the Giuliani administration in the 1990s, what they called quality-of-life policing. The idea was you bust people for, for petty offenses, and it reduces the amount of crime. And there was a huge spike in small-scale marijuana arrests during that time. And what this uh, group of researchers now has documented is that not only did the number of arrests go up, which we knew, but that where the arrests were happening shifted uh, dramatically from white and middle-class neighborhoods to poor and minority neighborhoods. So it's, it's more of the same old, same old that they, they go hunting in, in minority communities. And uh, the way I understand that law, how it's supposed to work in New York, is um, you get a ticket, but that's not the case. Uh, people often spend the whole weekend uh, in lockup, do they not? Well, and, and a lot of these arrests also were probably for very small-scale street dealing, somebody buying a joint from somebody on the street, uh, which can trigger a more more uh, serious penalty. And, uh, again, it's often easier to get people for stuff like that in minority communities where there's more stuff basically going on on the streets as opposed to the uh, the affluent townhouses of Park Avenue. I know that the Marijuana Policy Project is uh, very much involved in trying to help these marijuana provisions get on the ballot and, and to educate people to motivate them to go out and vote. How do you see this, this forthcoming election season? We know that in the state of California there's going to be several local initiatives to make marijuana the lowest law enforcement priority, uh, like the measures that have been passed previously in Oakland, California, and Seattle, uh, this year, uh, it's going to be on the ballot in Santa Barbara, uh, Santa Cruz, and Santa Monica, California. 
There's a possibility of a similar initiative in Missoula, Montana. I'm not sure if we've heard yet if that's if that's officially qualified. There's going to be a medical marijuana petition on the ballot in South Dakota, and maybe most important, statewide in the state of Nevada, where there will be an initiative to uh, set up a full system of state-regulated taxation and regulation of marijuana for adults. And uh, let's not forget the uh, Rainbow Farm state of Michigan. I understand that Flint and another city there are uh, trying to get similar measures on their ballot as well. Well, Bruce, if folks want to learn more about the efforts of the Marijuana Policy Project, please uh, point them where they need to go on the web. Well, please uh, look for us on the web at mpp.org. Thirty years is enough. I just returned from Chicago where I worked a leap booth at the National Association of Counties Annual Convention. Of the people that visited our booth, 105 were for legalization, only eight against, seven undecided, and three had no opinion. While there, I learned that the DEA is sponsoring an exhibit at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. DEA Administrator Karen P. Tandy said, This is one-of-a-kind exhibit graphically shows how U.S. illegal drug sales not only fund global terrorism, but also how drugs terrorize all of us. The drug trade is a cash cow for many of America's worst enemies nearly half of all foreign terrorist organizations tied to it. I agree with Miss Tandy that illegal drug sales fund terrorism. We disagree on how to handle it. She wants to continue the 30-year-plus failed American drug policy. I believe that the best way to take the funds away from the terrorists is to remove the astronomical profits from the drug trade. Leap believes that it should be done by legalizing, regulating, and controlling the distribution of all drugs. Drugs are too dangerous to be left in the hands of criminals, drug cartels, and terrorists. Legalization will immediately remove the profits and put the drug cartels out of business. And then we can get to the business of treating drug use with educational programs and medical treatment when needed. Education and treatment offer hope for the future. LEAP does not promote nor condone drug use. LEAP's members are current and former police, judges, prosecutors, and prison officials. We know that the current drug policy is an absolute failure and does far more harm than good. Criminalization of recreational users punishes the wrong people and makes the bad guys richer. Ms. Tandy further stated, we are making great progress reducing the supply and abuse of drugs. And it is our hope that having this exhibit in Chicago will shine a light on how the far-reaching devastation from drugs affects everyone. I disagree with Ms. Tandy. Drugs are more readily available, cheaper, and of higher quality than they were three decades ago when the failed public policy called the drug war began. The drug war, as it is implemented today, is actually a war on the American people and not the drug cartels, which are making astronomical profits the cause of the government's policy. What is the solution? Educate and inform yourselves. Ask tough questions of elected officials. It's time for a change. Together, let's find a solution for our future. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition at www.leap.cc, signing off. Luckily, we have enough time to run this musical production in support of our illustrious president. I'm a war president. I make decisions here in the Oval Office uh, in foreign policy matters with war on my mind. In other words, there are people who desperately want to stop the advance of freedom and democracy uh, because freedom and democracy will be a... Uh, will be a powerful long-term deterrent to terrorist activity. See, free societies are societies that don't develop weapons of mass terror and don't blackmail the world. 
I have been the president during a time of tremendous stress on our economy and made the decisions necessary to lead the, to, that, that will enhance recovery. You know, I'm not going to change. See, I'm not trying to accommodate. I won't change my philosophy or my point of view. I believe I owe it to the American people to say what I'm going to do and do it. And to speak as clearly as I can, try to articulate as best I can why I make decisions I make. This word dictatorship is a heck of a lot easier. Just so long as I'm the dictator. The unreachable star. Because I don't think America can stand by and hope for the best for madman. Nor do I, Mr. President, nor do I. Next week, the mothership is doing pledge drive, and we're going to send out a best-of program to the network. And as always, I remind you, there's no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data to support this drug war. We have been duped. Please visit our website, nprohibition.org. Prohibido istak, Ivalesco. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition. The Century of Lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Our engineer, Philip Duffy.